anybody can design a font. But of course, yes, there are skills, there are conventions, there are things to learn, but that doesn't mean that you have to learn everything in order to design a font or call yourself a type designer. Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. Welcome, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have David Jonathan Ross. David draws letters of all shapes and sizes for custom and retail typeface designs from his studio in the woods of Western Massachusetts. He runs his own foundry, DJR, as well as the beloved Font of the Month Club, where each month members could receive anything from a distinct display face, experimental design, or an exclusive preview of an upcoming retail font. David began making fonts while at Hampshire College, and in 2007, joined the Font Bureau, where he worked for nearly a decade honing his type design skills. In 2018, he was awarded the prestigious Prix Charles Pignon for excellence in type design by A-Type-I, excuse any French pronunciations there, and on multiple occasions has been awarded the Certificate of Excellence in Type-Based Design by the Type Directors Club. DJR is very engaged with the type community as well. He's given countless lectures on his expertise all over the world and teaches a five-week Python drawbot workshop for type at Cooper. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you here. You've been top of the list for a very long time, and I have no surprise that so many people in the industry just admire you and love the work that you put out and what you represent in the type community. So I think there's a lot to talk about. That's really nice of you to say. Thanks so much. Of course. Also, I just want to mention for listeners, when I reached out to David, I was like, I remember back in 2017, I was at Typographics and there was a random pizza party for young people at Typographics. And I think we met back then. It was just like kind of advice for young designers. And David was so welcoming and encouraging. And I remember I was so intimidated and you really were so kind. It was amazing. Yeah, no, those events were fun. They, I think they were put on by Adobe. It was like a pizza lunch and like a little panel about getting into the type industry. And yeah, I mean, conferences, I mean, I remember my first conference, it felt very impenetrable. And and what <laughs> got me into it was the TypeCon type crit, where I was able to show my font to, I think on the panel was Cyrus Highsmith, Matthew Carter, Oh and, my gosh. Um, maybe Akira Kobayashi. I think that oh, I think that goodness. was the trio. And after that, anything felt easy. But yeah, no, I, I love when conferences and events just, yeah, we're all a bunch of nerds just who love type. It doesn't have to be this really daunting, scary thing. We all just want to talk about fonts. Yeah, exactly. Once you realize that, it's like, oh, you met the celebrities, but the celebrities are just humans. And the celebrities in the type design industry are really, really nerdy humans, <laughs> which makes it a little bit more easygoing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you instantly have something in common with pretty much everyone there. Yeah, and it's certainly, like, no one else cares about the dot of an I in a sans serif versus a serif. Like, no one else in the world cares about that sort of stuff except specifically, like, type people. So the freak flag is flying and everyone has it, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously from that intro, any listeners that didn't know who you are before know that you're quite accomplished, but I have a feeling most of the listeners in our community are aware of the cool projects you do with the font of the month club, as well as your own retail fonts. But I'm very curious, because I don't know if I've heard the story of your early days in your career. And I want to know what initially sparked your interest in type design at Hampshire College? And how did you make it 
into your career from there. I think that's always kind of the mysterious transition that I'm always trying to share people's stories on when they get on the podcast. Yeah. So Hampshire College, I should, I guess I should talk about that first. It's a pretty special place. It's not your typical university. There are no tests, no grades, and no majors. Whoa. I don't want to trivialize it by calling a hippy-dippy free-for-all, but it's like, I mean, a really, a place where you can really explore your interests and not worry about fitting into a certain box and going down a certain predetermined path. But it's not an art school, not a design school. So I got into, I, you know, I, I was thinking I was going to study some sort of visual art, but I did web design, computer programming in high school. So I knew I was kind of into that too. And I started doing art and I was like, this self-expression thing is tough. I like the idea of solving problems like, like a designer would do. And that took me down a design path. I did a, a few independent studies where I would email the professor at RISD and like, what books do you read in your type one what? course? And then I would buy those books and do that for my independent study. And, and then I was like, wait, typeface design, there are people who do this. That's a thing. I had that realization as we all do at some point. And then for my, essentially the equivalent of a senior thesis, I designed some fonts for our student newspaper. And it was very easy for me to implement them because I was co-editor-in-chief of the student newspaper and I was dating the nice. other co-editor-in-chief of the student newspaper. Nice. So it was a very small decision-making <laughs> party. She is now my wife, by the way. Very sweet. I love that. And uh, um, But I was able to develop that font and see it used in real time. So, you know, it's a small school. The newspaper did not come out daily. Yeah. But every edition of the newspaper would have a new version of the font so I could see how stuff looked in newsprint going through like the web printer or whatever they had. So yeah, it was a really cool experience. I also did some fonts for theater productions. And my first font, Manicotti, was done for a poster, like a wanted poster, wanted journalist for the newspaper. Oh <laughs> you know, it was like that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that, that's how I got into type at school. And then okay. afterwards, I was like, I guess I should try to do this. So I sent out a mailed resume and portfolio on like nice paper mm -hmm. to like a few places, including Font Bureau. And they happened to call me back. Oh my God. It's like the old school cold calling, but with physical paper. That's incredible. I'm going to actually backtrack us a little bit because I wanted to have the clear vision of what those early years were like, but I also am curious about some details now that it's all been revealed to me. Were people thinking that your foray into custom type design for like the school publications, did you have support internally? Were other students interested in this? Were you really, really independent and found your resources as you were doing it? That sounds like very advanced skills for someone that wasn't surrounded necessarily by people that were kind of supporting this niche education. The weird thing about Hampshire is that every student is doing their own thing. So it's not like you mm -hmm. have like a cohort in the same thing, same way as you would. And like, you know, where you're like, oh yeah, there are other people in my major and they're taking the same classes as me and doing the same thing as me. So everyone's kind of on their own path. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think students were interested in like, oh, that's that weird font, dude. Okay. But I formed a faculty committee. Part of what you do at Hampshire is you find people who are going to essentially sponsor your self-created major. So I found someone in the adaptive design department who was interested in like designing wheelchairs and stuff, Whoa. but really interested also in visual design. So I had her, I had someone who knew a lot about printing history and kind of came at it from a historical mm. angle, but it was not a designer, it was a historian. And then I had the curator of the rare book room at another school nearby, Smith College. Oh, love that. And that was my committee. And then I also had other people like the person who taught letterpress at Smith also gave me advice. And I, because um, part of Hampshire is you can take classes at the other colleges. Mm -hmm. So I was able to take advantage of that and go to 
other places and take courses that are not offered at my tiny little school next to a farm. Okay. Amazing. Already feeling like enlightened about how that whole process was working. I want to know about your search for resources for your education at that point. I remember when I was in college, I did typeface for my senior project. I was like, got Karen Chang's designing type from the library and just like never let it go and held on to it for dear life. That was my main resource in addition to some web resources. And then I was using glyphs for my software, which was easily accessible at that point, but I know wasn't maybe previously. So what software were you using at the time? And yeah, how did you go about finding resources? Was it really just all word of mouth of people kind of recommending things? I was using FontLab. And one of the other thing I was able to do is I went online. Uh, Typophile was a big thing at that time. So I was able to get some resources through them. I found out about the Wells Summer Book Arts Institute. And so I drove out to mm-hmm. New York during one of my school breaks and did a, did a one-week type workshop with Peter Bain, who's a, mm-hmm. a, an excellent graphic designer. Um, and that was kind of eye-opening for me. And also just immersing myself in like, oh, there's a world of people who love books who will talk about bookbinding. And like, like, yeah. like the same thing that there is for people who talk about the dot on the eye of the font, there is mm-hmm. for, yeah, the stitching of the binding of the book, right? So it's like cool that every, there are so many little niches to explore. Yeah. And I also had support. From, I, you hear from a lot of type designers, like their parents are confused about what they do. Mm-hmm. My dad read an article I think it was about Matthew Carter it might have been like in time or Newsweek or something but it was like you know around that time there was like a mainstream article about a type designer and I remember telling him like I think I'm gonna do like a one semester type design independent study and he was like I just read an article about that that seems pretty deep you could probably like do that like as a year-long thing and that's kind of like what got me going into my senior thesis That's incredible. But yeah, finding books, you know, uh, Karen Chang's book was, I don't think around at the time, or at least I didn't know of it at the time. But yeah, having Bringhurst around, Ellen Lupton's Thinking with Type was a big deal for me. Yeah. I mean, it continues to be a big deal for me. It's just like the way things are laid out very neatly, but there wasn't as much about type design. Oh, sorry. The one I do love about type design. It's the one where it just tells the story of each typefaces. Not a tally of types, not... um, Is it just my type? I think that came out after after, after I was um, – oh, boy. Okay. Well, I'll Wait, get back to you on that side. Is it anatomy of a typeface? Anatomy of a typeface. Okay. Yes. I'm literally looking at that at my bookshelf. I was like looking at my type, my type shelf. I was like, which ones? I'm sure this – I have that one too. I think that one is great because, I mean, it's not a manual. It doesn't tell you how yeah. to typeset. But it's just like every typeface has a story. For me at the time, that was like so – mind-blowing because I was like oh wow I could make typefaces and use them to tell stories and have them have a history and a background and yeah so for me that was another big deal amazing that's some like deep history in that one I think I picked it up when I was starting to so when I was doing type in college I did a roman my first semester and italic the second semester and the biggest mystery was there was no writing on the history of like how to make an italic there was just a few sentences in every book I'm like and this is how the italic was made so I remember I was scouring that to unlock some information but a lot of it I had to just look at all the fonts on my computer and then compare the roman to the italic and see what tricks people were using to transfer those That's a great way to do it. I mean, can I ask, am I allowed to ask questions? Can I ask more about your program? Yeah, sure, please. So you did a year-long type design program. 
Not quite. I went to Pratt for four years. I studied graphic design. Our senior year, we do like two classes per semester and they need to be like something you want to pursue and you need to choose what you want to do. So I had a professor, Joe Roberts, and the first week I was like, I know this is crazy because all the professors at Pratt said type design is really for the serious people that are ready to commit years and years of your life. Like, which is obviously not wrong, but they also didn't see the merit in doing type design to understand about typography. And that's really what I wanted to do because I love type. So I decided to make this typeface Vreeland. I never finished it with 255 characters, like all that, but I did a Roman and it was like kind of like a Scotch Roman transitional vibe, a little more display-esque. My parents actually have the specimen right in their doorway. (laughs) So that's what I'm trying to think of. So I did the Roman the first semester, and then I did the Italic the second semester. And I had like critiques in class from my professor at the time, but he was not trained in type design. He was just like a really, really seasoned graphic designer. So he could give me some feedback. And I was just really in the library all the time looking at any instruction on type design, whether that's contemporary, like Karen Chang's book or some of the more classic books. And then I was doing calligraphy at the same time through Society of Scribes. Eventually I landed there, but all of those were working in tandem to help me design a typeface. And then, yeah, Glyphs was available and they had this great student discount. And I was like the type girl because I remember like no one else really cared about type in my program, at least the level I did. And funny enough, at my senior show, I had my Roman and my italic specimen. And that's where I met Micah, who runs the league. And that's how I'm here. (laughs) Amazing. We have very similar origin stories, I think. Yeah. That's, That's really cool. And that's why I'm so curious about the resources you found, because I'll talk to some designers today that are picking up type design in the past few years. And a lot of them do do the same thing. Like they search for resources, but you know, there's so many communities now because type education has become so much more accessible via the internet that I'm like always a little jealous, like seeing how many resources exist and how many things you can pull from. And then talking to recent graduates of all these type programs that just seem to be growing in numbers. It's an amazing thing seeing the growth in the past few years, for sure. Yeah, it really does feel like it's opened up and really cool and interesting ways. Yeah. It's funny to think about what the type industry felt like when I started out because I'm 37. I'm not like, it hasn't been that long that I've been in the industry, but it really feels completely different. Yeah. When you were starting out, were most people, was it like, I need to work at a foundry? That's the only way I can make this career. I think these days there's a lot of people doing hybrid graphic design and type design work. But yeah, what was that environment like? Yeah, no, it was much more of that vibe. As you kind of alluded to, it's like type design is this very separate thing and it's a pursuit and people, those other people, they do it. And then they join this company called Foundry and they make the fonts. And so it was like this very other thing. Mm-hmm. And now it feels much more integrated into the more general graphic design conversation. And yeah, as you've been discussing on the podcast, you don't have to publish through a foundry or operate your own foundry, right? You mm-hmm. can make type and get it out there in myriad different ways. And yeah. that's a very exciting thing. Not to say there wasn't like Defont back when I was in <laughs> design school. It's not like these things didn't exist, but it does feel different. Okay. I'm just want to dig in a little bit deeper. Like, do you feel like there's a fine line to be walked? Because I like saying everyone can pick up type design, but I do feel like there's still a sentiment where it's like, you don't want to discredit the people that are designing text fonts with years and years of experience. I just feel like sometimes it's hard 
to be like, yes, anyone can do this. But then it's just like, wait, but I've only heard you have to do years and years of training to actually understand this fully. Sometimes both are true. I don't know. What do you feel? Yeah, I agree. Both are true. I think that everything is a response to something else, right? So we're always kind of in this like parabolic swing back and forth, right? And when I was in school, and I'm totally oversimplifying here, but the vibe felt like typography is serious, you must take it seriously. Because at the time, Mm -hmm. that like the period before that was the 90s grunge font, Mm -hmm. just like explosion of early digital type where all of a sudden, fonts are just like these like free pieces of junk that you can download, they don't have numbers in them. They're just like, a to x so it's like you don't even have a full alphabet sometimes it's just like these junky pieces of software that's what was the perception and then we're like no 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 we have open type features now mm-hmm. we have small caps <laughs> this is a refined thing right so when i was getting into the industry it was all about bringing back the refinement into digital typography mm-hmm. that was lost when you transition from physical metal photo whatever to digital but then i think what happened is that kind of got so academic and snooty, I guess, that that it, it became kind of gatekeepery. Yeah. So yeah. what we've experienced, and I think what you were talking about is kind of a swing back to everybody can do this. It's glyphs. You can get it or, or font forward, right? You don't even have to pay any money or just yeah. a little bit of money. Just anybody can design a font. But of course, yes, there are skills, there are conventions, there are things to learn, but that doesn't mean that you have to learn everything in order to design a font or call yourself a type designer. I love that. I was like, I knew you'd have a nuanced take on it because I think there's two sides and totally agree about this snootiness. And I think my favorite type professor at Pratt was really, really difficult professor to have. Like he would, anytime you made anything with typography, he'd be like, well, why'd you choose that? And why does that look like that? Why is this justified like that? And there was this idea that all free fonts were bad that I think at the time, I remember learning a lot about Mr. and Mrs. Eves as beautiful digital type and the opportunity for type to be this crazy thing. And now that you're putting this lens on it of why that was like that is explaining so much about my type education, like an undergrad. <laughs> I'm actually glad you brought up the example of Mr. and Mrs. Eves. Because I mean, at the time it was only Mrs. Eves for me, but it, mm-hmm. that was a formative part of, of my graphic design education. And the cool thing about Mrs. Eves and, and Zuzana Lichko is that they could do stuff that felt classical and yeah. felt refined and felt new, but then also felt contemporary. And then from that same foundry, they were doing some like, bonkers ass shit. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, yes, know. absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Exactly. 100%. And you look at Amigrade's like catalog. And I remember being so confused because I was like, wait, there's this, this experimental, weird, makes no sense skeleton of a typeface. And then there's, yeah, pinnacle of elegance and refinement and polish. I love that. And it could come from the same place. Exactly. From the same foundry and sometimes from the same person. And I I like that you can kind of mix that high art typography and that kind of like more vernacular conventional typography together in one big pot. Like there is like, yeah, there is no qualitative difference sometimes. Sometimes there is, sometimes there is. Yeah, exactly. It's all letters. I want to bring this back to your foundry. Obviously your foundry is Not the most conventional, I would say. I think it stands out because of the type of work that you're producing as well as the way you distribute it. You, I think, have been embracing experimental design before every foundry now has like their own experimental design lab, which is an amazing thing. But I feel like you've been doing it for a while. After working for Font Bureau, you're at this big establishment for many, many years. What were the initial intentions you set when you started your foundry? I'm sure you had the idea of the foundry for a while. I'm curious what the intentions were when you started it. And then maybe how those intentions have morphed over time. 
Hmm. It's hard for me to answer this question because I don't think I started my foundry very intentionally. I loved working at Font Bureau. I love my coworkers at Font Bureau. I still work with some of them in, in some capacity at Type Network. But yeah, they is kind of pushed me out of the nest. They were mm. like, okay, well, we're transitioning to this new model of a tight network where we're going to be a distributor rather than a foundry. And we're going to let everyone kind of have their own small foundries. Oh. And so if you want to be part of that, you got to have a foundry. So you better get rolling on that. Oh my goodness. And so I'm very grateful that they did this for me. Like they, they were doing me a huge favor. And also the fonts that I published at Font Bureau transitioned over to become part of my foundry, which was incredibly wow. generous of them. Okay. So rather than starting from scratch, I had a little platform to build on, which was amazing. I had no idea. All right. Yeah. But how intentional was it? When I got started, I was just like, okay, well, I guess I need to take care of some of this stuff now. I feel like when you're running a tight business, there's two categories of things. There's making fonts and then there's all the other stuff. And then I was like, okay, I got to figure out this other stuff now. And that was like the first few years of running my foundry, or I call it my foundry. So the most recent podcast of yours I listened to was the one where you're talking about, okay, well, do you go to a foundry? Do you self-publish? And I was like, well, do you consider me a foundry? Do you consider me a self-publisher? What do you consider me? I don't know. Yeah. I actually thought about that when I was writing your intro. I was like, DJR just is DJR. Like, <laughs> like what is, but then I was reading that. I was like, well, what does Adobe fonts say? Because I know they specifically specify designers and foundries. And that's when I found that the foundry is DJR. Is that, that is correct, right? Yeah, it's my initials. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think in my head. I mean, so when I was listening to the most recent episode, mm -hmm. when you were talking about foundry stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I make that distinction because I feel like if you sell a font, you're kind of a foundry in my head. Oh. And like, yeah, you could be a, a foundry that sells fonts from just one person or you can be a foundry that sells fonts from a bunch of people. But mm -hmm. I don't know. But that, that's, that's always how I thought of it. So I was like, oh, that's an interesting distinction. But I don't know where I fall into that distinction. Interesting. I always am trying to parse out there's distributors, there's platforms, there's foundries, people are just designing type. It is getting a little muddled with the amount of ways oh, for sure. to do that. But I understand your confusion. You're like thinking, I'm like, am I, am I myself a foundry? Well, anyone can be a foundry. That is worth serving type. I mean, do we know what like the formal definition of a foundry is? someone who pours metal so none of us are foundries right? like, except for some of those cool letterpress people yeah obviously that is something that continue to morph over time yeah for sure so as being kind of like pushed out of the nest and maybe being like forced to figure it out were there any fears that you've had in those initial years? I mean, operating under a network and now operating like on your own yeah I mean I guess the fear is that nobody would buy or use my fonts, I guess would be yeah. the, the larger <laughs> fear. One thing I learned in my later Font Bureau years and my early starting a foundry years is to try to define success differently for each project. Because if my project does not make money or my project does not get used by some major corporation or whatever, it's not successful. Uh -huh. By that measure, most of my fonts are complete failures. And that was one of the things that I really started to think about. Like, for example, when I released my font input, it's a mm -hmm. font for computer programmers. Mm -hmm. And rather than going along with the standard licensing arrangement that Font Bureau had, I convinced them I, I wrote my own license. I did get it approved by a lawyer, but I wrote my own license, figured out my own pricing structure, including free for coding use because it's a coding font and I mm -hmm. wanted coders to use it. So really try to make the distribution, like how the font would get out there, what the success would, I mean, like for, for that font, the success is coders would, would use it. Right. Yeah. That's the success for that font. Yeah. And coders would have more flexibility typographically than they previously did. 
because input comes in a lot of widths and weights and all that stuff that like all the, you know, what we were talking about before, quote unquote, fancy typography that graphic designers had, coders never had. So it's like, what if coders had that typographic flexibility? So that was the goal of that project. And I define success as like people experiencing that flexibility. It wasn't just like, I'm going to make a font and I'm going to finish the font and then I'm going to figure out how to distribute it and market it. It was like, Mm. no, no, no. The marketing and the distribution has to be part of the design process. That seems very intentional. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess, but that was not me starting a company. This is still at Font Bureau when I did this. But that was something that kind of carried over me with me. So for Bungie, my mm-hmm. like that's a font that's about font technology. It's it was an early color font. It was an early Latin font to deal with vertical typesetting when that was just starting to be supported in browsers and stuff. So I wanted people to be able to access that technology, mm-hmm. and so put, having it as an open source license made a lot of sense because that's what I wanted people to get out of that font. And so distributing it that way made sense for that font. So yeah, I try to think a lot about where I want these things to get used rather than just like, are they going to make money or are they going to like be the next Gotham or whatever? Like that can't be a goal for every typeface because most typefaces won't meet that goal. I'm just letting all this insight sink in. I think the idea, (laughs) it's really incredible. I actually remember, I think I saw you talk in 2017, maybe you did a talk on variable type at Cooper. I did. Yeah. I went there with my friend and I remember you, I think input was coming out or just came out or has recently been released. But I remember you saying that, that input can be used for certain people. And that's not necessarily the outcome I want for every font. And this crazy experimental font, there's expectations I'm setting. And the expectation is not that it's going to become the next Gotham. And having that mindset for, I think like a myriad of creators is really important beyond type design. I think some people feel restricted a lot of the times in graphic design because they are so nervous that they need to keep their clients and it's so understandable as a freelancer. But then also having projects that you're saying, wow, this is useful for a different thing and might not be the money making is the thing at this time and place, but it can be used for technology advances or it can be used to have access to something that people aren't receiving elsewhere. And that's what really excites me a lot about a lot of developers, designers, et cetera, on the internet right now. I think we see a lot of that coming in and out of what we talk about at the league. And that's just really excited to hear from your perspective, the intentions behind that. And to jump off of that, I think I want to know you distribute your fonts on a few platforms and you obviously distribute them in different ways with font of the month club where subscribers or members can get a font every month. I want to know what success looks like with that distribution methods. Like what are the benefits of maybe Adobe fonts for some of your fonts, but not all of them. And then maybe font the month club, just because I think a lot of young type designers, they're looking at like a gazillion options of distribution. And I want to hear from your perspective, what you see as like pros and cons. I take a kind of a yes and view at this kind of stuff where like, I love the personal, my relationship with the members of the Font of the Month Club feels very direct, very personal. Like I literally just send them fonts via email. That's how the club works, right? I'm well, I used to do it as an attachment when, but when the BCC gets big enough, it gets dicey. So Mm. now it's a, technically the font is, there's a link in the email to a download, but the same thing applies, right? I mean, the whole point of the club, right? Is that you don't go to the fonts, the fonts come to you. So I love that direct connection, but of course, that's not what everyone is looking for. Maybe when they're looking for a fine, it's midnight and the deadline's the next day. Maybe you don't want to read a little essay about like, here's my process making the fun. Here's what I'm unsure about. Maybe you just want the damn fun. And yeah, just in getting rid of this gatekeepy typography, I think mm-hmm. the idea of getting 
fonts and decent quality fonts uh, out mm-hmm. to as many people as possible is a worthy goal and and also reaching people that are beyond my reach to get to. So I distribute through Type Network. I distribute mm-hmm. through FontStand. I, I think FontStand's model is really interesting and really cool mm-hmm. and just like lets you get really high quality stuff for pennies on the dollar and not enough people use it. I really think that more people should take advantage of that. Adobe Fonts has been really fascinating for me to experience because what's happened is a lot of my early fonts that maybe nobody cared so much about when they came out originally, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden have kind of like found a second life on Adobe fonts. Interesting. Um, It's kind of funny. It's like this, I don't know if it was just like a timing thing. Like I just missed the curve on like, like my font Condor, for example, is not a font that most people know of mine. It's Mm -hmm. my second or third published font. Oh, And it's like a high contrast sensor. And that really just didn't catch on and never got used. Most of my early fonts didn't sell. So for anyone trying Mm -hmm. to start a foundry, the point of most fonts is not to sell. The point of the most fonts is to get people back to your foundry so that they can buy the fonts that do sell. Mm. So it's fine, right? But but it's cool that that like I credit Adobe fonts with giving Condor like a second life. I see Mm -hmm. it used now. And I'm just like so psyched about it that even if there wasn't people at the time or people willing to shell out money, it's like, I don't know. It's like watching, like maybe I'd watch a movie on Netflix, but maybe I wouldn't go to the theaters to see it. It's like that sort of model of fonts. I don't know. Yeah. Wait, that's such a good way to think about it. In a way it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of similar to Netflix and Spotify, but not necessarily in the bad ways. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to cast aspersions. The other thing about Adobe fonts is that they have a team historically and now a team that cares about type. Mm Mm-hmm. And as we discussed earlier, they put on that lunch at Typographics that, mm-hmm. that, that we met at. And that to me is really important. And, and you, you can tell. It doesn't always mean that they're going to implement features immediately in the apps. Yeah. But I do think that there is really good people working there. And then Bungie's, Bungie's on Google Fonts, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an even different level of distribution. I like that I can have fonts that are exclusive to club members, fonts that are only available through my foundry, fonts that are available on some platforms, but not others, and fonts that are bungee, which is anybody could use it. I like that I can connect with customers and connect with font users on all those levels rather than having to like pick a lane and stick in that lane of like, oh, I'm exclusive and you have yeah. to like pay top dollar to, or else I'm not going to even talk to you. Yeah. I can have some fonts like that, but I don't have to have all fonts like that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And with Font of the Month Club, I think it's such a unique model. I'm reminded of it when I talked to Libby Bischoff about her 52 font projects where she was sending a font every week. Was there any models that you were inspired? Like what inspired Font of the Month Club? That was not anything... I think, similar to any other distribution methods I was aware of at the time. So first, I got to say, I feel bad coming on this podcast after Libby because she made a font a week and I make a font a month. (laughs) And so now what I do is not impressive at all. So yeah. (laughs) Oh, well. But yeah, I was inspired like Libby by the Pipe Foundry. And and because Stefan or Elmer Stefan did this amazing year of type similar to Libby. And it was really just like opened things up in a way and, and just made it feel so much more immediate rather than type having to be this thing that like was came from inspiration and Mm -hmm. baked in this perfect little oven for Mm -hmm. years and then was crafted and refined right it's like no type is just like it's raw it's out there you're just making it getting it out there that directness i really appreciate it and then similarly photo lettering i thought was a really cool project put on by house industries to get out so i'm talking about like the digital photo lettering website where you could buy lettering 
Do you remember this? No. I think the site still exists and some of the fonts have been released by house. But I mean, essentially there's this problem with display fonts of like, People love them, but there's only so many uses for like novelty disco cowboy font. That is not a font that's going to pay your bills. So like, what do you do with it? How do you get it out there? Mm-hmm. And I thought photo lettering was like, and the kind of display and novelty fonts that, and experimental fonts that they put out through that was yeah. also a really big inspiration for me. After I started the club, I also learned that Font of the Month Club is not a new idea like anything else in type, but mm-hmm. there are, are no new ideas. Chank Diesel did a Font of the Month Club, I believe in the 90s or early 2000s. Wow. And Georg Salden did a, I think he called it like the type circle or something, but like for a very long time in the 70s, 80s, where where he had a group of clients and he would send them a new font every month. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. I love that. And the historical knowledge of that is incredible. What's the community like? Do you hear feedback from people in the club? Is it a lot of type designers? Is it it graphic designers? I'm, I'm just curious. It's a mix. One of the reasons I started it is because I always had like a list of friends who I would send in progress fonts to just to be like, Hey, can you try this out? If you get a chance or whatever, like you're kind of like on my beta list. And then Mm -hmm. the club was kind of like a a formalization of that Mm -hmm. into a a thing. And also just an an engine. I mentioned before, there's two kinds of foundry things. There's, There's work on the fonts and work on all the other stuff. And the club was a way to make sure that the other stuff didn't take over. So I always had a need to work on fonts. For me, it's really important. I remember attending a talk in Atypi, Mexico City in 2009 or something mm-hmm. by Christian Schwartz. I remember I had gone out to see the Teotihuacan pyramids and made it back right in time for his talk. And it was about running a foundry and just about all the other stuff that once you're managing a business, it design becomes just one of many things that you're doing. Yeah. And I think about that talk a lot because I really like to make fonts. The action of making fonts is a thing I enjoy. And the club is an engine that makes it possible to do that without kind of having to worry about like, okay, well this week I'm going to be working on an Instagram post for my fonts. Like, no, I, I got to make a font for next month. Like that's that's my focus, right? So it kind of keeps me focused in a way. Back to the community question. I started, I thought it was going to be like a few of my friends, like my mom would join, which she did, by the way. She she is still a proud dues paying member. And yeah, I think that, that there are some type designers who maybe just want to see me sweat. I don't know. <laughs> That's being cheeky, but like yeah. who are just there for the appreciation of fonts or like a thing is like a common message I'll get is like, I don't know how I'll ever use this or if I'll ever use this, but I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. having it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of the weird thing about the club is I'm sending out fonts that some of them are completely unusable. Some of them might be usable if you happen to have a project in a year from now, but they might not be immediately usable. Mm -hmm. And then I hope once or twice a year, I put out something that like, is a real workhorse that can really be a a kind of a crucial part of your library. So I, I try I try to mix it up. But yeah, graphic design studios branding agencies, people who are not in the industry, but just kind of have a a peripheral interest in type. It's kind of essentially a a monthly type newsletter. Yeah. Even if people don't even open the the font files, it's still something. Well, I've been appreciating the Instagram post about Nickel Gothic. So I know you're like, yeah, the Instagram post is like kind of the duties of the type designer, but I have to say you've been doing it very well. I appreciate that. I mean, of course, it's always like a mixed bag with that. So it's like, I want to have fun with it. I will be frank. I don't love font marketing. And part of the, when I enjoy it is when I'm making fun of it, which is what you saw me doing with Nickel Gothic was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I like getting the fonts out there, but, but yeah, so I would probably just rather be making fonts at any moment. 
I totally believe that. And I also feel like every person that's a designer is victim to the content creation production churn where people make of content course, every yeah. day. And then you're just like, how do people do it? Yeah. I, I support people taking a step back and prioritizing what is actually like making them happy and participating in the community because that isn't necessarily content creation. <laughs> all the time yeah no i mean but i mean i think it can be though yeah right? i mean i think that yeah. so i mean i'm not trying to take a like a, a shot at, at yeah. foundries that focus more on marketing i should if i were smarter <laughs> i would focus more on marketing if i were yeah. a better business person i'd focus more on marketing it's about like yeah have your the things you create be part of the conversation without just like contributing to the hype machine yeah and it's a really hard line to walk so difficult mic drop so good I really do want to talk to you for hours, but I have two juicy questions I want to get in before we wrap things up. I don't want to make like an hours long podcast where people are like, oh gosh. So first question, David, you're a super positive, optimistic guy. This might be tricky for you, but what's something that you're dissatisfied with in the type design industry that you'd like to see change or improve? Hmm besides monotype? I don't know. I mean, this is a tough question. I feel like a pick one question is always hard, right? Because we talked about before with like typographic snobbery or gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. Like that's a thing I'm dissatisfied with, mm -hmm. but also a thing I see progress with. Same thing with issues of diversity. Mm -hmm. It's a thing that is obviously a problem, but also things, I mean, you've had several guests recently on this podcast who are like doing amazing things to make this a more diverse and open industry. Yeah. So yes, it's a problem, but I, well, A, I don't know if I'm an expert to talk about it. Okay. And B, yeah. And people are doing such great things to solve it that it's like, am I going to come and complain about it? Mm -hmm. Just as an aside, for anyone who hasn't seen Tight Crit Crew, Juan's initiative, Juan Villanueva's initiative, that really changed my pandemic in a way that I think very few people understand. When he launched it, I was part of on the list. And I had always been kind of talking to people and doing kind of offhandedly when people asked, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll let your stuff, whatever. But it was always like this kind of like choreographed dance of like, okay, David, I'm so sorry to bother you. Yeah. I don't want to take up your time. Like, and this awkward thing where then like, maybe there's kind of a question of, can you look at my work in there? And then I have to be like, okay, sure. Like, I don't know. Do you want written feedback? Is there, is there like, what, how do you want it? And then like, there's like five emails before we got down to business. And what Juan did was took a thing I was already doing and just like set up parameters. And it was so beautiful because people know they don't have to feel bad about asking. We are all here. We all signed up for this and we, we do it on a, a Zoom call or whatever. And I make people use whereby because they use my font. But yeah, we come, we meet, we know exactly you, do, you don't owe me anything, right? It's like, there's not that. It's yeah. so beautiful. And I wow. met so many amazing people and living out in the country. It was, it was just kind of a, a different pandemic experience of, yeah, really not seeing a lot of type people, even yeah. when things started to get a little better and meeting folks through type crew was incredible so yeah i'm being positive you're asking me to give you a negative no, no, um, I, that. I, I really did i mean i can tell you i'm struggling with mm. with my own foundry and you know, i don't think this is unique to my foundry but i did not realize when i started my foundry what a difference there would be between the fonts that sell and the fonts that don't i knew that there would be some fonts that are more popular than other fonts mm -hmm. but i i always thought the graph is going to be kind of like a a shallow graph of uh, this. I'm doing a visual thing. Sorry, it's a podcast. But but I mean, it's really a steep graph, yeah. right? Where, where the fonts that don't sell really don't sell and the fonts that do sell. I mean, and that's, that's yeah. great. I think that's a fairly universal thing. Mm 
right? Mm-hmm. And and I think part of that is just like what graphic designers happen to see. And part of that is just like maybe nervousness about what goes into a font, kind of like making a safer font choice when you might not have to. I mean, sometimes you have to make a safe font choice and you make the safe font choice. Yeah. Sometimes you don't have to. And in those cases, I want to find a way to tell you that you shouldn't. Yeah. And same thing with pairing type. I think a lot of people, maybe they had a design professor somewhere where you must be very careful when with pairing Match the X height. Like, That's what I was told. Oh, yeah, match, match the, the X, X height. height. Or like, you know, choose typefaces from the same designer. I'm like, yeah. no, mix it up. Yeah. Mix it up, right? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I want to see new things. So I'm really trying to find ways to, like, without taking the popular fonts off their platform, mm-hmm. just like figure out how to get those unpopular ones in the mix every once in a while. Yeah. And I think typography will be a lot more fun if that happens. <laughs> and and no, I think part of that's just converting like a font that you would easily like on Instagram, but you yeah. wouldn't necessarily yes. buy and have available to you. Yes. It's like crossing that divide, I think is a real tricky thing. Bridge the gap. There's some places I go to when I want to like see those unexpected mixes, like obviously fonts in use. I know you're a fan of, I'm a fan of. I mean, best website. Yeah. Like you can't get better than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible. But yeah, I agree. It's just, I also would want to see that shake up a little bit more too, or elevating some fonts because I work full time as a graphic designer. I get the most freedom I've ever had with typography at my current job, which I just love. And whenever I want to license a font, I usually can get approval for it. I've never had this happen before. I've worked at places where everything was bootleg fonts on the server. So it's so funny because when I get the opportunity to design a logo that maybe the brief is find something wild and wonderful, I'm just going to go like deep into things that are in corners. And then when you find something that does feel unique, everyone's asking where it's from. And everyone's saying, wait, where'd you get that? And like, where did you find that? And all that. And I think that is a win for me and a win for the foundry and a win for type design and design in general, because type designers are making the future of graphic design. They're like producing what they hope to be seeing. And I totally agree. I want things to shake it up a bit more. Ready. On that note, I have a little thing that I do. One of my super minor efforts to try to do this is that, so if you post a, a font of mine on Fonts in Use, I'll give you a free font, a free back issue from Font of the Month Club. If you post a font that's never had a post for it before, I'll give you two, right? Because oh I, I want you to I want you to, to do the unpopular ones. I mean, like, I love it when you, like, Forma is one of my one of my fonts. That, it's funny that, that my two bestsellers are Rosendale and Forma, which okay, are also that makes the sense. fonts in my, in my library, which are most similar to Times and Helvetica. <laughs> so what are you going to do? I kind of make fun of those fonts a little bit because of that. But yeah. also when people use them, I have seen people just like knock it out of the park yeah. in a way where even if I'm like going to neg one of my own fonts, like when they use it, it's undeniable. Like I get why. But yeah, I, I mean, at the same time, I always want to fight for the little guys, not not only in my own library, but also there are just so many fonts sitting on the shelf there. And, you know, Instagram's never going to show you the font that re- was released seven years ago that mm. had that like for whatever weird didn't quite catch the current or whatever. Yeah. Instagram is never going to show you that. So it's like it's up to you to find it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I got one last question. And then we can wrap this up. And don't worry. It's a positive question. We're moving through the spectrum. Who's a person working right now in a letter form world that you admire? And yes, it's okay if there's more than one person. <laughs> yeah, again, another another pick one question is a, re- a really tough one. Okay, so can I give you like the politician answer? Yeah, please. 
I'm not exactly sure what your motivations are for asking the question. Like, I don't know if you'd like, you, you want like the listeners to go follow this person or you want to kind of like, just yeah, no, I just want to showcase who people that I think a lot of people admire you and your work, like who you're looking at and just like an extra little, Hey, here's someone cool working in the type design industry and everyone has different answers. So not too many motives behind her, except celebrating other people. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't like trying to imply that you had some agenda here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and it's a totally good question, but it's just like so hard to single someone yeah. out when, I mean, really, I do feel like, as we were saying, the industry has opened up. We are in a renaissance of like so many people are A, doing this and B, skilled at this, yeah. right? We have multiple, not that you need to go through a, a typography course to be skilled at typography. I didn't do one of the master's programs or the Cooper types or whatever. But I mean, we have so many people who are good at this right now working that <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's like, so I mean, if I'm going to say something to the listeners, kind of going back to the last question of like typography is a language, right? And the best way to learn a language is immersion. So if I'm going to give you something like a to-do list for people out there, it's like go to a website like typefoundry.directory. It's run by typefoundries.directory, I think. Yeah. Run by Matthew Smith. It's just like a list of independent type foundries. Open up so many tabs that your computer fan is spinning. Follow them if that's what you do and look at everybody is my, is my politician answer. Yeah. And if I'm going to give you a person, I will give you the person who A, introduced me to your podcast and B, released a font last week. Her name is Martha Sue Kersey. She released a font called Curiously on Future Fonts and everybody should check it out. I'm going to check it out right after this call. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. I know it's a hard question. No one likes answering it. It might be everyone's least favorite question on this podcast. That could be your first question. We could just have an hour talking about cool people making cool stuff. 100%. And I love the idea of going to like Type Foundry or Type Foundry's Dr. Directory. I know what you're talking about and just opening everything because the indie world always needs more support. And I'm so here for it and supporting those designers that are, are really trying to make their name or just show the world what they love to do. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I will say not to end it on a technical note about that website, but you can also sort by folks who have educational discounts if mm, you're still in school. Because okay. if you're in school, that is the time yeah. to take it. I mean, all of my fonts are free for students. Like, yeah. Take advantage of that. And folks who have testing licenses, of course, so you can do free trials and stuff. So, I mean, it's very easy to spend time there and come out of it with a lot of fonts. Yeah. And, and a lot of like new inspiration and things that you can try out. And then when you actually do use it, yeah, you can go back. So for me, that's what I would love everyone to do. Cause I think that's how people are going to find those weird ones in the corner rather than just like whatever's on like the top 10 list. Absolutely. I so here for it. I think that's a perfect way to wrap things up. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for this. It flew by. I was like looking at our <laughs> timer and I'm like, Oh Gosh, I could just keep on going forever. But thank you for all your generous knowledge sharing and sharing your story into the creative world and what it's like working there right now, because I just think we need more stories like this. And you're such a kind, wonderful, generous guest. I can't thank you enough. And thank you for inviting me and for doing this podcast. Cause you know, there, there's I mean, even as big as the industry is, there still aren't that many places where you can just hear people talk about type. It was really fun to hear you do the crossover with the Intero gang because oh. that's what's one of the other ones, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is a really valuable thing. I love just listening to people talk about fonts to verbalizing this very visual thing is a really fun thing. So yeah, I, I really appreciate you having me and doing this. Amazing. Well, with that, I, Hopefully we'll have you again soon. I think there's so many other topics we could traverse, but thank you so much. Thanks.